0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. 30 years ago, HIV and AIDS were mysterious diseases with no cure. In 2019, people with those diagnoses can not only survive but thrive. Here in Atlanta, one organization aims to educate communities about HIV-AIDS. Sister Love Incorporated focuses on improving access to HIV-AIDS prevention, self-help, and safe sex, especially in underrepresented communities. Tonight, Sister Love is honoring 20 women from across the country who are living with HIV at its 10th annual 2020 Leading Women's Society Fundraising Awards Gala. Dazon Dixon-Diallo is the founder and president of Sister Love Incorporated, joining me in the studio. A pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Cecilia Chung is an honoree at the Gala. She's Senior Director of Strategic Projects and Evaluations at the Transgender Law Center. Joining us from San Francisco, Cecilia, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right, I'm going to start with you, Dazon HIV and AIDS initially Mm -hmm. associated with gay men. Why is Sister Love focused on
1: women? Sister Love is focused on women because while it appears and while there was suspicion that it was primarily gay men, women have actually been diagnosed and living with HIV as long. There are some women who are alive and doing very well today with a diagnosis over 30 years.
0: So you are honoring these women who have been living with HIV.
1: Absolutely. And have
0: been for
1: how long? So in this instance, every year we're looking at folks who have been living with HIV for 20 years or more. And that actually just started because we were looking at a way to celebrate our own 20th anniversary back in 2009. So now we actually have a class of women in the alumni group who are coming back, who are also celebrating their 30 years, mm-hmm. just as we are this year.
0: Now, what an important message for people to hear, this idea that it's a death sentence is so outdated at this point.
1: Exactly. And that these women that we honor every year, I consider them a very elite group of people, Because if you think about it, 17 plus million women on any given day on this planet are living with HIV. I can tell you there's not 25 to 30,000 who are doing every day what these amazing, incredible women are doing out front, living out loud and working on the front lines to change it and make it better for somebody else. Mm -hmm. That, That's something to stop and say thank you for.
0: And Cecilia, you are one of those women, currently the first person living openly with HIV and the first transgender woman to be chair of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. When were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed with HIV around 1992, 1993. Well, as Dezon mentioned, not all people living with HIV are working to improve access and education of the virus as you've been. How did you get there?
2: Oh, I think that it's... I got the short straw. Um, no, I, I think that, you know, that basically, um, it, it's a lot of what Jason had already said. The transgender community has been quite invisible like in the epidemic as well since the early years. And especially for transgender women, we experience the same type of stigma and discrimination and the same kind of shame that most women experience during that time. It's kind of different between how a man gets HIV and a woman gets HIV. And so um, we are being labeled as a lot of things and blame us on our promiscuity and really not able to recognize, you know, all the social determinants, you know, that drive the epidemic. So because of that, I became very vocal and really talk a lot about HIV as a consequence of the um, inequality and inequity that we experience in our lives. And sometimes it pairs with lots of violence in there. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: I know that from your story, you've overcome discrimination, homelessness, brutal assault. How did these experiences inform your outreach now? It really helped build me up, I think, you know, and in terms of resilience
2: and also um, opened my eyes. To the type of um, systemic violence and social stigma that transgender women of color face in the community and so one of the things that um, we are doing right now is to really educate you know the community at large you know and the bigger audience you know about what it means to be a woman of color what it means to be a transgender person living with hiv And most importantly, like you all said, you know, it's no longer death sentence.
0: Jason, I want to ask you about that. Sister Love was founded in 1989. There were very different protocols, treatments, and perception and outcomes, certainly for people with HIV. How have the goals of Sister Love
1: evolved in those years? That is such a great question. The goals have evolved in a couple of different ways. One is we have always worked at the intersections of sexual and reproductive health and rights and HIV. That doesn't mean that we always had a place to do that work because so many things are are binary and are bifurcated. And there's sort of this false divide between the HIV work and the HIV community and what that's about and what reproductive health and rights is about. I'm a part of the founding of Sister Song as well. Right. Reproductive justice is what we created as a way to look at the combination of social justice and sexual and reproductive rights. So the goals for us have changed only in the context of how those intersections have changed over time. Our goals have also changed in that we recognized a long time ago, and now it's just in our face with things like having the Affordable Care Act in front of us and uh, not yet accessible to all of us, that HIV in and of itself is not enough to address our social problems in our communities or our sexual and reproductive health challenges. So we've got to, our biggest goal right now is to de-exceptionalize HIV to, to a point where it is a part of all of the things that women are dealing with every day,
0: so you mean that yes. you know all this funding is available for for stopping the spread of HIV, exactly. but not necessarily for all those other parts that right you're what about?
1: happens if you stop HIV but it hasn 't stopped the violence that actually perpetuates uh, HIV in some instances? what happens if stopping the transmission of the virus hasn 't dealt with the stigma so people living with HIV are still facing different oppressions every day, so it 's not enough to use the you know, uh, as they say, a pill a day is not going to get us to the very end of this epidemic, and it's certainly not going to get to quality of life until we've dealt with some of the other inequities and inequalities that exist, not only in our health care, but in our society.
0: Dazon Dixon Diallo, she's founder and president of Sister Love, the first women's HIV AIDS organization in the South. Sister Love is holding an event tonight to celebrate women living with HIV for a long time, 20 years or more. One of the honorees is Cecilia Chung. She's also with us on the line from San Francisco. This is the only one in the Southeast. Are there others throughout the country, sister love organizations?
1: There are not other sister love organizations, but we certainly have sister love partners out there in the world. We are partnered in many different ways with groups. There's a national, of course, like the Transgender Law Center is one of our partner organizations. We also are partnered up with Positive Women's Network USA. We work very closely in a partnership called In Our Own Voice, the National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda. So there are eight of us organizations that are black women-led that are also working across the spectrum of uh, black and brown queer issues. We're also working on reproductive health rights and justice, women's voting access. And we're also working around making sure that HIV and other sexual health and reproductive justice issues are completely integrated into all of those things. So when we're doing canvassing or when we're doing voter education, we're not only talking about the legislative issues that are currently afoot in D.C. or in our Georgia or in our state, But we're also talking about how these issues are intersecting with all of these other places that are voter issues, right? I mean, nobody recognizes the fact that people who are restricted to abortion in the state of Georgia right now could also be living with HIV. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, you, so you're speaking to this is something that I think a lot of social service organizations are realizing now. You need not just to treat one thing, but the wraparound services. But you're also living in a time when there are uh, proposed laws like that in Georgia that is now uh, fighting its way through court or will be fighting its way through court. And there's not a lot of Um, let's say political power behind the idea that these are relevant issues you know maybe Mm -hmm. HIV is you know Atlanta one of the cities where the spread of HIV is happening the fastest Mm -hmm. but those other issues that you're talking about those intersections are not something that a lot of legislators want to address.
1: They don't want to address in some ways but when you think about the fact that state of Georgia for example has one of the highest, if not the highest, maternal mortality rate. They care about that. We also have one of the highest infant mortality rates, which also is concomitant to our congenital syphilis rates, which are also really, really high. So they do care about some of these things. And, you know, I'm at a stage where... I can do, you know, as they say, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I know how to continue fighting for our rights around equity, equality, and access to all of our reproductive health services. And that is, of course, including our trans family in terms of their access to sexual and reproductive health services, which is a whole nother area. When you root what you're doing in the human rights framework, and then you surround that with this concept of reproductive justice... I know that I can sit at any table and find an issue that we're going to be common on somewhere, somehow in between. But where we can find commonplace, that's where we have to do our work. And I think that that is what really needs to be different. It's about calling in as opposed to calling out sometimes.
0: Cecilia, you're a person whose career has been made in the human rights space. Many people who do live with HIV are not necessarily public with their personal diagnosis. Why did you decide to tell people that you're HIV positive?
2: I think the reason why I decided to tell people that I'm HIV positive is kind of like by default because I wasn't getting the services that I need in the early days when I first tested HIV positive. I could not find, you know, like a doctor that would not talk about me being transgender or talk about my lifestyles. And so, you know, that was actually my first fight is to make sure that we educate providers communities, you know, to be more gender affirming so that you know like we feel more welcome in order for us to be treated for the HIV that they're getting paid to treat.
0: Well, Dr. you have looked at a lot of research and and a lot of individual cases where people have gone public about their diagnosis. What is the effect of that.
1: Yes. I'm actually glad Cecilia raised that because her own experience is exactly what's lived out in lots of folks research. But one of the most recent pieces that I found most fascinating is the work of Celeste Watkins Hayes who tells us through her studies is that for women especially black women and women of color Disclosing their HIV when they are of low and no income is actually a benefit. We don't often see disclosing your status as a benefit in any of our lives. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at what we do have as social safety nets now through the Ryan White programs and other things, disclosure means that you can now access health care. The converse of that is what is also the possible experience of women who are middle and upper income, who have professional Uh, positions in life or maybe status in their communities or in their families, that for them, and some of this is perception, but a lot of it is very real, that an HIV AIDS diagnosis in and of itself can actually reverse all of those benefits, all of that economic advancement, all of the status and positioning. We have women who were attorneys, who were lawyers, who um, were in the, you know, attorneys, uh, deputy attorneys general or MDs. That kind of diagnosis, whether you... Uh, if you don't disclose, it also lends itself towards the depression, the trauma of it. Some people end up in substance use, which then by you know, default, if you will, reduces your status right. because you probably lose your job if you don't lose your freedom. Never right? mind and the so, health outcomes. And never mind the health outcomes. So there's a real important thing when we're talking about disclosure and what that means to individuals, aside from the criminalization question. When we're talking about women, we have to look at what that portends for them in the entire converse of their uh, in the, the universe of their lives and not just this one piece which is that HIV diagnosis to disclose is a very serious matter that goes beyond whether or not i want somebody to know my business
0: well, I know you're looking far beyond that piece, and I really want to thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Dazon Dixon Diallo, founder and president of Sister Love Incorporated. And Cecilia Chung, congratulations, and thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Cecilia Chung, she's an honoree at Sister Love, the 10th annual 2020 Leading Women Society Fundraising Awards Gala. That's a mouthful.
1: <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> of extra syllables in there.
0: The event is honoring 20 women from across the country who've been living long term with HIV. You can find more in the event at our website, gpbnews.org. This is on Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. This past summer, MARTA was considering renaming five stations in Atlanta. It was an effort to keep up with changes in the city and reflect surrounding neighborhoods. Well, today, MARTA says no decision on renaming stations has been made, but they're currently refining the process of making them in the future. One station slated for rechristening, Bankhead. The area was named after the highway that ran through it, which in turn was named after an Alabama family, which included, by the way, the actress Tallulah Bankhead. But the Bankhead name is perhaps most closely associated with the torrent of rap and hip-hop that grew from Atlanta's west side and nearby neighborhoods. When the changes were first proposed, we wanted to unpack the historical and cultural importance of Bankhead and sat down with Dr. Joycelyn Wilson, a professor of hip-hop and media studies at Georgia Tech and we were joined by Andre Dickens, Atlanta City Council member for Post 3 at Large. He's also chair of the city's transportation committee. I started by asking Dr. Wilson what we know about the namesake of Bankhead Highway.
3: So we know that it is named after John Hollis Bankhead, who was a congressman in Alabama. And he was also part of the Confederacy and allegedly part of the Ku Klux Klan. So I think that's part of why there's this conversation around the renaming and the naming of it. But what's so fascinating is no one really knew this at first. So when he passed in, I believe 1920, he was his legacy was was archived uh, with the establishment of Bankhead Highway, which went which goes from DC to San Diego. It's US 29. Mm-hmm. And so his legacy was the his participation in the uh, Federal Aid Road Act in 1916. And this was the first federal funding to establish highway infrastructures throughout the nation. And so in Atlanta, when you come up through Athens, U.S. 29, and and it picks up right here at Northside and Donnelly Hollowell. Now, uh, this was when it began to merge with U.S. 78 and. Once it's going through um, Alabama, U.S. 78, it's going parallel with I-20. And so as you're going into Alabama, if you've ever driven to Tuscaloosa, you go over the Coosa River. And that's the Bankhead Bridge. And I believe U.S. 78, parts of U.S. 78 is named after his son. William Bankhead. So they have a legacy in, you know, the naming of highways and roads throughout the, throughout the country. Right. You mentioned Bankhead Bridge, also Bankhead Tunnel
0: in mm-hmm. Alabama, mm-hmm. and then, of course, the Bankhead neighborhood in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, so beyond the highways, mm-hmm. in a broader contemporary culture, Bankhead has become deeply associated with the hip-hop and rap that's come from the neighborhood. Let's hear just a sample.
4: Hey, what's happening, man? It's your folk. T.I.P. the Bankhead head ambassador. Did the here, man. Got the
2: paper. Like 40. Don't save us. Bankhead. head. Been pulling the Cause it's
4: real bank Real favor.
1: with no risk. I'm a bankhead. head. i take your cookies. Like Bankhead Pull up in a straw, Top of Aurora On Bankhead Hold her down i
2: pull up That's game Coming up on you From the top The HL And Zane Cooler than most players claim to be it Get it from the A-Town See the home of the Bankhead Bound Kevin Taro That nothing Those bras coming out Got them dancing on the Bankhead Like they from Bankhead Get the best shot Go on, get yourself out Cause I yell Bankhead And you feel left out I ain't missing
0: your name and we could have gone on and on. <laughs> yeah. And
4: on. I was trying to guess which ones were coming, uh, because I know all of them.
0: Well, we heard there from Shoddy Lowe, D4L, Bone Crusher, Gucci Mane, Jay-Z, Outcast, and of course, T.I., N.T.I., N.T.I. And we did not forget the Bankhead Bounce. 1995 Bankhead natives Diamond and D-Rock came out with this hit song. Let's hear just a little of that.
2: What's up, what's up, what's up? Ooh. Nothing but that H cha Better leave it Dropping, and ah. shout it you it, you know what's
0: bouncing here in the studio. I mean, the Bankhead Bounce famously performed by Michael Jackson at the 1995 MTV Music (laughs) Awards. These musicians, all of them, put Bankhead on the map with a reputation and hometown pride. So what did that mean for the neighborhood, Joycelyn?
3: Oh, it means a lot, because in hip-hop culture, spatial identity and community is very important. Whether these spaces are real or imaginary, they give identity to the people of the community. And so Bankhead for many African Americans particularly those of us of the hip hop generation was the opposite of buckhead it was a place that we could go to and there was solidarity there was unity of course it has this is- it had its issues around crime and violence and poverty but to hear bankhead shouted out in this in this very local national and international way established a level of pride and solidarity and and unity and that's Significant and indigenous to hip hop, regardless of whether it's Bankhead or any other space, Compton, South Central, whatever. Staten Island. It's Staten Island. It's the calling out of these spaces to represent a collective identity. Well, just a few years ago, this is 1998,
0: the Georgia Department of Transportation renamed Bankhead Highway to what we now know as Donald Lee Hollowell, as you mentioned, Donald Lee Hollowell Parkway after the civil rights advocate. Official reason for the name changes were unclear. Was there any understanding of why this name was changed, Andre?
4: Yeah, so at that time, of course, I was not a member of the Atlanta City Council, um, but this is a state highway, and so um, the city can weigh in and give its input, but it's a state road, so that's a state route, so it would have to go through a state process, and one thing I'd like to mention is, of course, I'm the Transportation Committee Chairperson and the City Councilman now, but Joycelyn and I are natives of Atlanta, Mm -hmm. of Southwest Atlanta, of Mays High to be exact, and uh, of course, we have colleagues, friends, peers that went to our schools that lived on this road or near this road and essentially might have um, grown up in Bankhead homes. Uh, mm-hmm. And so now to see, um, you know, our colleagues, Goody Mob, of course, they're talking about Bankhead Seafood. And now a younger rendition of Goody Mob, which is T.I. and Killer Mike, have bought Bankhead Seafood's property. Right. And so, um, you know, keeping up with the name change uh, to Hollowell, it gave some people like, oh, wow, we're going to change Bankhead because Bankhead is definitely, you know, all in our culture, our lyrics of music. Of course, like we mentioned, the Bankhead bounce and, um, everything that you always say from Bankhead to Buckhead, yeah. you know, to basically distinct the two differences of cultures, uh, within one city. But when the name, I do remember as a citizen at the time, um, being um, familiar with you know a little bit of angst about going to a different name, but when they came up with the name of Hollowell, someone distinctive. I mean, someone that, uh, that that you know was instrumental in integrating UGA um, mm-hmm. as a lawyer. He's a great lawyer, and then um, and then being um, in a, a civil rights icon, being affiliated with Martin Luther King, and some you know. So it became I, I think it softened the transition, mm-hmm. and I think Marta at this time is trying to comprehensively look at all the street all the MARTA stations that are on roads that have now changed. Mm -hmm. So Bankhead Station, um, if you're looking at it on a map, you know, you don't see a bankhead anymore. So where does this station actually put you off at? Why isn't it bankhead slash Hollowell? Or why isn't it something else? Um, for us as natives, we know it's the bankhead station. This is where I get off at if I'm going to XYZ. Um, and it's, uh you know, s- some familiarity. And so, you know, I'm more interested in going through a proper process with mm-hmm. the community to take our time, make sure that it's community-driven, community-involved, before we make any changes to any station names, um, the same thing that we do when we make street name changes. Joycelyn and I were instrumental in uh, coming up with the John Lewis Freedom Parkway. That was my initiative, and Joycelyn was one of our task members. And that took a year mm-hmm. of taking our time, communicating to the neighborhood planning units, the neighborhood associations, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to come up with, okay, we're going to make this Freedom Parkway now called John Lewis Freedom Parkway, and do it in a sensitive manner, and everybody's happy about it. But you have to take your time. You have to go through a community-driven process.
0: That's Andre Dickens. He chairs the transportation committees and a member of uh, the Atlanta City Council. Also with me, Joycelyn Wilson, assistant professor of hip-hop media studies at Georgia Tech. Well, I do want to note that we did reach out to MARTA about its consideration to rename the Bankhead station, who said that it has nothing really to do with the Bankhead family. Uh, This is their statement in part. MARTA station renaming conversation is driven by the need to provide clear geographic orientation for our riders. Mm -hmm. It's alluding to your point, Andre. The significant costs Involved in replacing maps across the entire system warrant that name changes happen infrequently and when more than one station needs renaming. It says MARTA's intent is to ensure that all our station names make sense in the city's geography and help create a system more user-friendly. And the statement goes on to say that they're considering the renaming quote because the station names no longer reflect the name of the street or landmark for which it's named. So it's more for geographic orientation, making it more user-friendly for riders. But if Bankhead stops being Bankhead, what happens to the musical legacy? I guess is the question. Still rooted in those streets in that neighborhood, does losing that reference make a difference?
4: I think partially it does. Um, it could invoke some nostalgia. Like, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years from now, if you don't have a Bankhead Martyr Station, if there's no more lyrics being said, Bankhead, it's what happens to these my grandkids when they grow up and they don't know the word bankhead. They're
0: like
3: granddad, where's What's bankhead?
0: Yeah, granddad, yeah,
4: you know. And I'm talking about you know, <laughs> make a left on bankhead, and they're like, "Where's bankhead?" Say like right now, I can still yeah. say, "Make a left on bankhead" or "Go up bankhead." And people, even though there's no street right now called bankhead, everybody that I know, all my mm-hmm. folks would be like, "Okay, I know, <laughs> I know where you're talking <laughs> exactly. about. It's Donnelly Hollowell or bankhead." Um, I think that uh, Joycelyn can probably speak to the cultural part. Yeah, of and I'm it's wondering about up. this, Hip-hop. Joycelyn.
0: I want to pick up on that article in uh, the Atlanta General Constitution cited some conflicting opinions about changing the name. Some say yes, change it. Some say no, keep it the same. What do you think? What do you think Bankhead
3: residents are likely to get are they getting fired up about this? They should. I think that even though Bankhead has this this other legacy associated with it, it was popularized by the community. And I think that has to be preserved as we go through these revitalization and, you know, economic sustainability efforts that the city is undergoing. So I think that to Andre's point, I mean, if there's a way to maintain it, Bankhead, Hollowell, or somehow build it into and keep it as part of the Martin Station naming, I think that preserves not only just the name with the station, but it preserves the name in the community. And that's really important when we're talking about just sustainability. It just, you know, it can't only be about the economic sustainability mm-hmm. and the environmental sustainability. The arts and the culture has to be a part of that conversation as to Andre's point about the community. So I think if there's a way to preserve it and to archive it and whether it's not So that it's not necessarily in the textbooks, but it's actually still apparent. It's still on the MARTA station. It's still on signage. I think that's really important for that community.
0: Yeah, I'm, j- I'm
3: just trying to think, like, did
0: you ever think you'd see a day that a bunch of hip hop fans were like fighting to retain the name of what amasses to a, or amounts to a Confederate soldier?
3: To, for a place. Many I mean, that's yeah. what that is. People did not know that. Know. Yes. You know, I didn't know. You know, a lot of people didn't know. I mean, Bankhead doesn't really sound like somebody's last name, right. it sounds like a place, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but we know in real estate sometimes nicknames are adopted to change a perception of a place. Exactly. I mean, Buttermilk Bottom is no longer used, right? Uh, of course. And, and the Gulch, you know. Uh, Certainly been discussed by some focus groups, I'm sure. What are they calling it now? Centennial Yards? Yeah, I think
4: they're calling it Centennial Yards. And, so, and,
0: so who does the rebranding serve? Is that community, developers, well, prospective buyers? Well,
4: this is really what I, I think is the crux of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, names do matter. If it matters to one person, a few people, or a whole community, that means it's worth the discussion of how to preserve it and how mm-hmm. to go about uh, delicately and comfortably having a conversation as community-driven about what is the name going to be. I think we're having this conversation on a day, just a day or two removed from uh, a huge uproar that's going to last a while about Quarry Yards, mm-hmm. which is literally mm-hmm. a brand new development right across the street from the Bankhead Station. Mm-hmm. and this uh The literature that came out recently for Cory Yard says something like, welcome to the new Atlanta or experience the new Atlanta. And it had all white people in the brochure. Literally, in Atlanta, Georgia, you have uh, a, a, a literature that came out that's distinctively saying this is what we're trying to become versus what has been hyster- historically known in this area. And that's a no-no. That's unconscionable. And so um, they, they, I mean, um it's, it's now on the front page of the AG- but- I Listen. saw the
0: flap about it over the weekend on Twitter.
4: So yeah. if you if you draw a circle around Bankhead, Marta Station, the Quarry Yards, Grove Park, you have a whole lot of angst and community concern while development is coming in. That's much needed development. Mind you, there is no grocery store or even a bank on Bankhead Highway. Right. Let's be clear. There's no bank on Bankhead. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> if you're if you're on Bankhead, you want development, but we want development without displacement, not even that's just a, not not we don't want displacement economically but we don't want displacement culturally exactly. if you culturally displace people culturally displace the historical references of Bankhead the historical um, in your literature you wipe out the people um, then you take the little thing that people in poverty have the little thing that all of us have which is our voice and our wholeness they matter these people matter and so when you wipe them out in a brochure or you change a name without their input then you have a problem so I'm, I'm hopeful and I think Marty is going to be responsible and um you know open to discussions with the community and have this done the right way core they're going to get a lesson from the city real right. soon
3: mm-hmm. and uh, then the other part is that the in the brochure they're calling themselves a the new atlanta yeah. t- which is a co-optation of new atlanta versus old atlanta that was created by the community that distinction so it's literally a co-opting of naming so to andré's point about names matter because they give you identity they give you collective identity and the 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 tragedy of that brochure is not is is the fact that there are no people of color in it but also this use of New Atlanta in a way that it was not designed to be used. Mm -hmm, Right. The New Atlanta,
0: the Black Mecca, the Mm -hmm. capital of the South kind of thing. All right. So we just just have just a minute left. No specific names yet proposed for the name change. The Martyr Board does have final say. So this is not a referendum. Andre, you alluded to doing this right, engaging the community in the right way. What do you think is the right way to go forward?
4: Yeah, you want to basically have... input from the community that is broad. It's not just an email survey. You don't just put it on Facebook and say click here as a poll. So we want to have community meetings. Uh, we want to go door to door. We want to be able to have um, you know folks come all together and see if we can come to uh, Compromise at this station and other stations. Uh, we're just hearing about this one, but Fort McPherson is going to change because it's not going to be Fort McPherson anymore. Mm-hmm. So on and on and on. Wherever we have a name change or the discussion, we need to have a real thoughtful discussion. and and I'm going to be a part of that discussion. Marta's definitely going to be in the mix.
0: Andre Dickens there, city council member for Atlanta, and Dr. Joycelyn Wilson, professor of hip-hop media studies at Georgia Tech. Since our conversation this summer, Marta has not made a decision on changing any station names. We're going to head into the break with T.I.'s song, Paperwork. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick around to hear from an organization that considers Buford Highway as more than just an ethnic food haven. It's Bew when On Second Thought continues. <laughs> From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Buford Highway is an eight-mile stretch of highway between Atlanta and Buford, Georgia, and a destination for people from near and far to chow down on a wide variety of ethnic food. The area has earned a reputation as the place to seek international cuisine in Atlanta. But there's more than just food. Buford Highway is also a thriving center of international cultures. More than a thousand immigrant-owned businesses have laid the economic and social foundations for building community there. We Love Buhai started as an Instagram page in 2015 to highlight those local businesses. Today, it's a bona fide nonprofit that aims to build connections across the various communities thriving there through storytelling, arts, and community events. Lily Pavian is Buhai's new executive director. Lily, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, okay, so Buford Highway is so many different things to so many different people. I'm wondering for you at, and your colleagues at Buhai, what do, you, what do you say? What do you want people
5: to get when they get there? I want folks to come in and feel that they want to experience and learn. Um, and I want them to walk away with a feeling of respect and, and an understanding that this is, you know, a place of real lives, real people, real struggles, real food.
0: <laughs> key there. Uh, key there. But, but that's the thing. I think a lot of people think it's a place to go eat. You are, mm-hmm. You're adding some depth there. Is of what I mean. course.
5: You know, uh, coming here to eat. And and walk away. That's certainly people do, um, but um, there are real impacts going on here, and I think that that's important. That's something that's really important for folks to understand. We love Buhi. This started, of course,
0: as an Instagram page highlighting culture and community along Buford Highway. Instagram
5: is mainly a platform for young people. Is that the target audience for We Love Buhai? Um I think that there's certainly. Um, A need to or or drive to pass on a lot of these learnings, because, you know, as you distance yourself each generation, you learn, you you know, more less and less. Um, But um, I think that for sure, we're trying to open it up to all um, generations because I think it's very important. For
0: the last couple of years, we love Buhi High has been working in partnership with Georgia State to collect oral histories from residents who grew up around the area. We're going to share some of those today, but first, this is Susie Corbett, who grew up in Doraville, '60s and '70s era, back when Buford Highway wasn't even yet the scene it is today. Here she is.
5: They were, we were in the store, and there were some young kids that did, they just followed us, you know, from aisle to aisle and just, you know, stared and i remember going to you know like restaurants and you know literally people would stop and you know turn and stare and so i knew that you know there was a reason you know we looked different and so yeah i mean i i guess you know from early on and then as i got older you know then you know i, I was teased in school some so i just i knew that i was i was different of course, what Susie's saying resonates with me. Um, being a Chinese American, it is something that is just true. Um, yeah, she was she was said uh, she was spat upon in
0: elementary school, and how her family would travel to Atlanta for Chinese food. And your father was one of the original founders of the Chinese Community yeah, Center on Beaufort
5: So, what are your memories of that time? Did you feel welcome? Um. It was a, it was a tough time I think um, because I actually had to relearn English um, because I learned it in New York and I came down here and, and, and it, was, <laughs> it was a different it was English, a different, it was a different type of English. Um, but it was a, it was a scary time. It was, um, but there was also some really fond memories of just being really connected um, with the community, but also through. Our in- interactions, we were able to even connect deeper with my my parents. Mm-hmm.
0: So, did your family when they came here originally stick with the Chinese community, or
5: was that interplay? There was there
0: interplay between people of various different it was. immigrant communities. It
5: was for sure. Um, we lived in apartments um, right behind Paris Baguette. It's called Legacy North. Um, back then, it was Manor Ridge, and um, our neighbors were Uruguayan. They were Korean. They were Indian, and we um didn 't speak the same language, but we did a lot of um you know little grunts or nods and you know and we figured it out. but we connected because we were all different
0: uh, also during that time, this has become a hot spot, which yeah. is so interesting uh john T edge of you know famously said. The most interesting thing going on in Southern food right now is happening along Buford Highway. So so what does it mean for those people who grew up there and who started businesses there to be welcoming people from really all over the world? This has become such a destination when people come to Atlanta and, of course, people from around Atlanta in Georgia. What does that mean in terms of their identity?
5: Um particularly i can talk about speak about you know my family and um i think there's a sense of pride that comes with it um because you know and that and that was being able to share your story being able to talk about it um it was something that they didn't do for a while um but it took you know, just that community engagement and that feeling of, you know, hey, we've got other people that are in, in that, that share the same stories. We may not come from the same backgrounds, but similar stories. Um, and I think that that, you know, is, is just gave that a sense of empowerment. A
0: lot of Buford Highway was settled in the 70s and 80s when there was a different view of immigration. Of course, that has ebbed and flowed throughout mm-hmm. our country's history. But now there's a very anti-immigrant feeling, have you heard from people who are business owners along Buford Highway experiencing that and and is that part of what you're doing here is it is it let's say advocacy
5: I would say it's advocacy and empowerment for sure um and yes i um there is a general sense you know especially when we're talking about the restaurant owners um and even mechanics you know i mean it's there is a there is a um a shortage of folks that come to work that, that are able to work um, and so that, that it is impacting for sure the businesses there. So
0: you mean the people who own the restaurants and businesses can't necessarily find people yep. to fill the jobs? Yeah. So what do you do as an organization in that case? How are you working with them? You
5: know I think it's about awareness because you you, don't, you can't really fix or address things you don't know that's happening and, and you know um, we are within communities that Are not automatically just sharing, you know, and and voicing it. Um, So I do think it's important to get deep within these communities, within these people, developing relationships, and then from there, really understanding those needs. How do you keep Beaufort
0: Highway authentic when cultures and dynamics are constantly changing, so people are flowing in and out of neighborhoods?
5: As public agencies like, like ours, I think it's, it's really about having um, a seat at the table, so to speak, um, through our work. We have those really deep um, relationships and um, understanding um, of what's beneath sort of that, that cultural iceberg, right? The, the layers that are underneath. And so to be able to um, voice that, um, to be able to empower folks to speak about that, those are important things that um, preserve Lily Pabian is
0: with us. She's the new executive director of We Love Buhi. It's a community building nonprofit serving Buford Highway residents, and of course, connecting people from the community to them. In fact, she's brought this beautiful little guide to Atlanta's Buford Highway. It has all sorts of different restaurants by location, which is really helpful for me. I mean, I have actually been on Buford Highway. These places are what they are. They're not saying like you know, signs in English, come eat here. Right, They're not right. catering to uh, 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 definitely uh, the local public. Right. Um,
5: So there's a kind of sense of mystery when you go there, for me. Yeah, yeah. I I think for a lot of folks as well. I mean, you know, we're not just talking about the Asian communities. There's, you know, Latin communities. There's Haitians. There's, you know, all sorts of um, cultures there. And I think that we all sort of feel that sense of mystery. Um, You know, I I, I can look at a sign and say, oh, that's Chinese. But then something's in Espanol. And it's like, oh, that's mysterious to me, right? Um, But... That's the uh, the importance of having a community like that within the Southeast, I think. is
0: there a threshold there, though? Is it hard to get, you know, maybe not necessarily someone that thinks, "Oh, I've got the kids. It's Saturday afternoon. You know, it's really easy just to go and get pizza locally, right? <laughs> of rather course. than going to Buford <laughs> Highway and, you know, going into the mystery?
5: Yeah, I you know, from from my perspective personally, it's, oh uh, I had a long day. Gosh, I really want a bowl of pho, you know, or a, a, something that's just comfort food for me. Um, and so I really just think it's, it's where you come from and, you know, what perspectives you have.
0: One of the oral histories included in collaboration with Georgia State is real estate developer Peter Chang. Here's what he had to say about changes in the community over time.
2: I remember in 1996, Atlanta hosted the Olympics. That was a big deal, you know, and, and that actually put Atlanta on the world map. And after, right after the Olympics, I, I noticed that Atlanta became more and more international. And uh, I met <laughs> and um, made friends with a lot of international people who came in to invest. Or relocated with their company, uh, set up offices in Atlanta, and so forth.
0: It was my understanding that a lot of Latinx immigrants came in to work on construction in the Olympics, and mm-hmm. this was one of the, the one of the big infusions of population at Buford Highway and around Georgia. In your view, is Buford Highway part of Atlanta or a distinct, separate community from the rest of the city? I and mean, how integrated is it with the rest of the city?
5: I, I think there is integration there for sure, I, and you know, and just by nature of of the highway bridging three cities, um, three vital cities of Atlanta together, um, I think there's integration. But then the flip side, there is a little sense of its of its own, um, and I think that's what makes it so unique and and powerful. One of the
0: people interviewed for the Oral History Project is Oscar Barrara. He talks about growing up poor on Buford Highway, but his family was determined to press through these setbacks. They owned the Tortas Bakery in 2006, then opened a sister restaurant, Tortas Factory del DF, which won Atlanta Magazine's Best of Atlanta Award. Here he is on realizing the financial potential of Buford Highway for families like his.
2: At what point in time did you know that uh, Buford Highway was a place that you could make a living.
4: Mm. Uh,
1: it probably wasn't until I got older, because like you think about it, you know, you're a kid. Other people might say, "Well, you know, they're from Buford Highway. They might not have much," but you don't know that. You don't. You don't feel that. So, I mean, I didn't notice until maybe I got older that you kind of see. This is a place where immigrants come to make it that you start to notice, you know, you notice uh, a lot of immigrants and you see a lot of shops and restaurants from all over the world.
0: So there's a kind of knock on effect. You know, one person sees that someone else is making it. There's a kind of encouragement for the next person. Is that what makes it a hotbed for immigrant owned businesses? Or what do you think
5: is driving that? Definitely word of mouth. I mean, that is the, that has always been the beauty of and, and sort of the backbone of Buford Highway. And, and you know, you hear about it. And, and that's how we certainly came. My aunt was, you know, they, they set up here and um, we heard about this opportunity, this place that we can actually afford and, and come in and, and build our family. Yeah, I think that that word of mouth is something that still runs true today.
0: Last month, Atlanta Magazine dedicated an entire issue to Buford Highway, centering around food, from brick-and-mortar restaurants to the international candy sold at grocery stores. You say you've hesitated to focus We Love High's
5: outreach on food. Why is that? Again, I go back to sort of that, that cultural identity iceberg, and, and, and art and food are right at the top, right? But underneath that as well, for me anyway, food is also in the, in the underneath values and... and um, I just remember growing up hearing stories of, you know, my father and how he escaped war as a child, World War II, and how he escaped to Taiwan and then how they came here. And um, and he wouldn't talk about it as much until there was a piece of food item. For instance, you know, he would um, – one day he was cooking rice and he accidentally burned it. And then he started scraping the pieces and he was just devouring it. And we were like, what are you doing? And he told us that story of how he was so hungry and, and – there wasn't a lot of pleasurable things but that one piece of rice was something that was pleasurable as a kid hmm. and so when he told us that we're like oh now we found ourselves fighting for the burnt you know rice bits during dinner and so again it's it's easy for food to be i think a one and done right you come in you eat yeah okay and you move on it was good um but again it's it's connecting the dots. It's telling those stories. It really gave me insights to what his values were and, and how he um, processed a lot of that trauma that he went through as a kid. Um, so it that just speaks to me. Yeah, people connect through food, clearly. But do you think somebody
0: going into a restaurant, um, you know, a Somali restaurant, uh, a, a Syrian restaurant, anything along Buford Highway, Did they understand something
5: differently about the people there through the food? I certainly think that that's their first, um, you know, they come in and I think their heart is open because their taste buds are open and then they kind of say, oh, this is pleasurable, this is great. But I do think that it is important to um, take it just a step further and to understand sort of the, the, the storytelling behind each of those because, again, there's just so much depth to all of that. What do you think people misunderstand about Buford Highway and the people who live there? Anything <laughs> um, I hear you know folks come in and it's overwhelming they're they're not quite sure where to start. um they realize that it is a gem and they want to explore it. but I think there is a level of intimidation there um because perhaps because of the different signs or the different languages, and that's something that's not you know you don't necessarily see that in other areas. Um, so, but, you know, and, and that's kind of, the, you know, the work that we're doing through our agency, you know, through, through this, this, uh, even through the guide and, and even the Buhigh shuffle we did. It was a campaign we run uh, last year, you know, through gamification, trying to get folks to say, hey, you know what, it's not as intimidating as you think. And let's start here and let's go from there. Yeah, there are ideas for
0: family-friendly places, yeah. romantic mm-hmm. group gatherings, that kind of thing. All right, so now, Lily, you're the new sheriff in town. We love you. <laughs> Hi. How are you planning to expand on its existing work?
5: Well, you know, we certainly, through the Oral History Project with uh, Georgia State, that has been such um, a vital piece of, of our organization in terms of our programs. And that is something, you know, we, we have um, a stable of, of interviews. Um, you know, we've got... Uh, discussions with Marta in the works as far as getting those out in story booths and, and, you know, getting them on the bus stops. Um, So folks can really, in the community, start benefiting from the work that we had um, been doing for the the three years.
0: Lily Pabian, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Lily is new executive director of We Love View High. You can find links to the oral histories that we used and a lot more about We Love View High all at our website, gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.